0: one-week season what is going on inner circle fam welcome to the week 14 edition of the Tuesday Inner Circle podcast. This is take two for those of you listening after the fact. Those of you who are listening live, thanks for hanging with us uh, through the little false start that we just had. Uh, So tonight's Inner Circle segment, we just went over this for those of you who are listening live, but I will repeat it for those of you who are listening after the fact this will be our last live Tuesday segment of the year, the way that our that my holiday schedule works out gets kind of crazy in the next few weeks. And then uh, for two of those weeks, I will be in middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, at my in-law's land, where internet will not support uh, live streaming like this. So uh, this will be our last live segment, but these will be up on the Inner Circle podcast feed by the time that you are used to listening to them live for the last few weeks of the season you can still drop questions throughout the week and i will be answering those if any questions come in again as we get deeper into the season questions kind of tend to dry up on these types of things but if any questions come in i will be answering those on the podcasts as well one other thing to note for uh those of you for those of you listening this week um we will have a special email going to you on uh thursday with something that's really cool that we're putting out there for inner circle so um looks like aaron can't hear me hear me i'm getting texts from him but everybody else is good so we are going to keep moving forward with tonight's segment actually this is kind of the the least technical difficulties we, we've had since the first or second session so uh, we've had a pretty good season a pretty good run with these live recordings okay so the first thing i, I kind of started making notes last. Tuesday or Wednesday of what I wanted to talk about this week. And then the ideas kept developing throughout the week based on the way that this last week's slate was. So I'm going to start from this point. And that is last week, I talked about finding unique solutions to problems and how valuable that is in DFS. And the one of the things that we talked about was if you come up with unique solutions to problems, oftentimes you end up complicating simple problems. And it takes you longer to find a solution to simple problems, but you can end up coming up with solutions to more difficult problems that other people wouldn't come up with. And I was thinking a little bit more about what my process is for that. And one of the things that I thought about actually before this last week's slate kicked off was that a lot of times the solutions look obvious in retrospect, In other words, if you could jump forward to the future and you could see back to the problem, you would be able to more clearly see how to solve that problem. Well, that sounds obvious, right? But what's interesting is that's actually one of the things that I do. So I've talked about this before. I talked about this in the masterclass course, which I know a lot of you have picked up. And I've talked about this in a few other spots. I think I talked about this on the chat pod last year or the year before, but I basically spend... A little bit of time every day, looking forward into the future, as in there's one day of the week where I look 35 years ahead. The next day I look 20 years ahead. The next day I look seven years ahead. The next day I look two years, then two months. Uh, then I look at where I have been, and then I look at where I am. That kind of covers the seven days of the week. And what that does is I kind of force myself to look at where I where I expect to be or where I would like to be in various areas of my life, both writing professionally, personally, relationships, 35 years from now, 20 years from now, seven years from now. And by kind of moving backward like that, when I'm looking 35 years ahead, I don't really have to think that logically. I'm able to just kind of think big picture, like what's possible? Well, basically anything's possible in my life in 35 years. And so I kind of am able to think optimistically and project optimistically of where I'd like to be in my life in these different areas in 35 years. And then as I get down to 20 years, and especially seven, eight years, that range, and then two years, I have to really start thinking more logistically about, okay, well, I know that if I wanted to be in X spot 35 years from now or 20 years from now, I would need to be, or at least expect to be in this spot seven years from now. And if I want to be in this spot seven years from now, here's where I would probably need to be two years from now. And if I need to be in this spot two years from now, here's where I would need to be two months from now. In other words, here's what I need to be doing each day in order to get where I want to be 20 years from now, 35 years from now. And so what that ends up doing is I, I work from the end result and kind of start building toward what are the structures that would get me to that end result. Why do I bring that up here and now? Well, we can do the same thing in DFS. And when I talk about building for first place, It's funny because it seems like such an obvious thing to do and it seems like – I remember the week that uh, I was at my parents' house in New England a few weeks ago and Matthew Petrich hopped on and we broke down his winning roster. One of the things that I talked about on that week's Inner Circle segment was the conversations that I was having with my dad where he was kind of firing questions my way about DFS and DFS strategy and DFS theory and – I talked about you know telling him that the, well, basically that Matthew had laid out the three things that he had kind of held onto while building rosters all year had been build for first place, build fearlessly, and I don't remember what the other one was, but the building for first place thing, it seems obvious. And when you say that to somebody, it's like, well, of course people build for first place. But what I mean by build for first place, isn't that we're building Oh, build for 200 plus points. That was the other one that Matthew kept in mind as he was building. It's not that people don't want to get first place or that they're actively trying to just cash, but it's that they don't have a focused point that they start working backward from. And so when I give this example of saying, where do I want to be in 20 years? And then I kind of work backward throughout the week. And then it's like, oh, well, if I want to be there in 20 years, then I should be in X spot in two months. And I should be doing this this week in order to make sure that I'm in X spot in two months. Well, it's the same sort of thing with DFS. We can look, I I basically spend all of my DFS building time thinking about Sunday night. And I think about what I will be how we might be assessing the slate on Sunday night when the slate is over and we're looking back at it. What will a first place roster look like from this particular week? And it's a very different way of building than saying, what do I want to fit onto this roster? or What do I think of these games? But instead saying, okay, when this week is all said and done what do we think first place rosters will look like? If I'm trying to build for first place, what are some of the things that I could be thinking about so that when I'm actually at Sunday night and looking back, I can say, oh yeah, this was all pretty obvious in retrospect. So again, it's about jumping forward and thinking about first place and then looking back from that vantage point. And you're not always going to know exactly what's going to be on those first place rosters, obviously, but it kind of gives you a different perspective than other people have, where other people are looking ahead at something that hasn't happened yet and they're trying to guess what might happen. And instead, you can look from first place and say, hey, everybody else is guessing in these spots, so if we played out this slate 100 times, what would be the likeliest way to outmaneuver these people? So instead of saying, oh, let me guess on who's going to produce this week, you're looking and saying, what is everybody else guessing on? And if we played out this slate over and over again, what would that mean for first place rosters? So get into that habit of fast-forwarding to Sunday night and looking back at the problem from that angle, because again, a lot of times these things seem obvious in retrospect. So I was making those notes last week and it was an interesting week to be making those notes because it was such an interesting week. We've spent so much of this year talking about embracing uncertainty and allowing others to overrate their ability to predict what will happen. And Two weeks ago, I built a roster that we talked about on last week's Inner Circle segment that had Randall Cobb and Adam Thielen on it in single entry high stakes play. And I was the only roster in the tournament with Randall Cobb and one of the only rosters with Adam Thielen. And the entire approach for me that week, as I talked about heading into the week in, in Inner Circle and in the, I guess I talked about it in Inner Circle, I talked about it in the Oracle, and then I talked about it a little bit in the Player Written Angles podcast, was I said, This is, again, two weeks ago, so this is week 12. I was saying, there is so little certainty on this slate that my entire goal for this slate is to predict nothing. All I want to do is determine what other people are trying to predict and play off of their over certainty. And that's been one of the best ways to play throughout most of this season because so many crazy things have happened. Now, this last week was such a different and unique slate. And it's important to recognize how different different slates can be. And that's one of the reasons why we talk about, you know, each week we should be assessing what is unique about this week's slate. That's why we ask that question is the first question in the Oracle each week is what makes this particular particular slate particularly unique? Because every slate is different. So one of the things that I noticed this last week was there were so many clear and obvious logical plays that it was a week where it actually made the most sense to try to be better than the field at predicting who the best plays were. So I spent, it was actually, I I did not have a profitable week. We'll get to my roster and my approach here in a minute. And it was like a much more frustrating, non-profitable week than normal for me. And most weeks, Whether I have a winning weekend or a losing weekend, if you were hanging out with me, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know if I'd won $40,000 or lost every entry that I put in because I've done this long enough and kind of been focused enough on training myself to not care about the short-term results that it's just like, whatever, whatever happens this week doesn't really matter in the big picture because I know I'm putting in plus EV rosters. This last week, there were so many clear and obvious logical plays, and it was so clear and obvious that the best way to win on this week was to be better than the field at getting all the right plays onto a roster together, that I actually spent a lot more time messing around with rosters this last week than I have most weeks this season, because it was like, man, if I can spend enough time with this, I can figure out this slate. I can figure out what the hierarchy is of these Players. And so it was much more frustrating when things didn't work out because it was like I, I felt like it wasn't that I was just playing the right game of, of variants. And if we play out the slate a hundred times, I win. It was a very unique slate where it was like, oh, like this is a week where you really kind of have to to just be better than the field at figuring out who the best plays are and getting them onto a roster together. So that was what I did this last week. And I want to walk through the roster that I built and the roster that I didn't use. So first off, once the Hertz news started becoming more and more clear, like, oh, Hertz really might not play. One of the things that I started doing was building some rosters around the Eagles and Jets game. So not just building rosters with Gardner Minshew, but actually stacking around that game. And I made this note that I wanted to share with you guys that I think is really exciting extraordinarily important of why we build around games. Obviously, there's a lot of things that we talk about in terms of you give yourself fewer things that you need to get right in order to get several roster spots correct. Or you could say it like this. If you're playing four guys from a game, your chances of that game playing out the way you need it to play out in order for those four guys to get you the points you want, your chances of that happening are higher than you guessing correctly on four different individual plays from four different Games, right? That's one of the reasons why we build around game environments. But I thought this was really cool. Another one of the reasons we build around game environments is because it forces you to think differently. When I was doing mini multi entry, you guys might remember one of the things that I was doing was I was building forcing myself to build at least one roster around every single game, recognizing that I was gonna be putting in 14 rosters or 19 rosters or whatever it might've been that week. And I wasn't going to be putting in rosters from every game, but I would build at least one roster around every game to sort of force myself to see things from a different angle. If you pay attention to Sonic's MME play, that's one of the things that he does in MME is he builds at least one roster around every single game and puts it into play. So this last week, I was building rosters around that Eagles-Jets game. I guess this was Friday night or maybe it was even Saturday afternoon. And I built a roster with Gardner Minshew and Devontae Smith and Elijah Moore. And what I thought was really interesting about it was if we are picking individual plays, Darnell Mooney and Brandon Ayuk were both there in the 5K price range. And both kind of stand out more than Elijah Moore and Devontae Smith. So if you are picking individual plays, you are going to be picking Darnell Mooney. You're going to be picking Brandon Aya. But if you build a roster around a game environment, it forces you to consider these other wide receivers. And one of the reasons why this is so powerful is because wide receiver is the highest variance position that we deal with in DFS. If we take out defense special teams uh, and, and we're just looking at like skill position players, wide receiver or pass catchers are going to be much higher variance than running backs and quarterbacks. So when we select individual plays, we end up overrating our certainty on those plays alongside the field. So this player who is a better player, like Brandon Ayuk was a better play than Elijah Moore. This last week, Elijah Moore is still dealing with Zach Wilson under center. Uh, Corey Davis was back and healthy before he got hurt again. And Brandon Ayuk is on this team where we can project that things are going to be concentrated on him or Eli Mitchell or George Kittle, like one or two of these three guys are going to have a really nice game. but. Brandon Ayuk, if he's three times as highly owned as Elijah Moore, for example, he's not three times as likely to outscore Elijah Moore. And so when everybody is trying to isolate individual plays at a higher variance position, it pushes the ownership on those individual plays higher than it should be. So by building around a game environment, it forces you to take the lower owned play who is A more plus ev play just fundamentally if this guy is going to be significantly lower owned if the gap between the popular play and the unpopular play is large enough that unpopular play is plus ev because he's not that big of an underdog to get outscored by the other guy so i think that's one of the interesting elements about building around game environments and as i said this can be used not just in the rosters you're putting into play this can also be used in terms of saying okay I'm gonna build around these game environments just to get a sense of what else is out there, to get a sense of what are some of the different ways that I can be building around different games. That Eagles Jets game, that ended up being kind of the breaking point for me on this slate, and it started out. I was actually really proud of a lot of the steps that I took this last week. And again, I'm I'm highly self critical of my roster from this last week, and because I didn't feel like it was a week where it's just saying, "Hey, look, let me outmaneuver the field from a strategy standpoint." But instead, it was again the rare week deep into the season where I really felt like the edge was in building with better players, like being better at at identifying who the best plays were on the slate and what was the best way to put it together. So again, highly self-critical of my roster this last week, because I didn't quite close things out, but building around that, that Eagle jets game and trying to see all the different angles. I was messing around with Minshew plus Miles Sanders, plus Devonte Smith. I was messing around. The, the, the big risk for me in my mind with Minshew, now keep in mind, Minshew only threw 25 passes. The big issue in my mind was the Eagles have been the run heaviest team in football in situation neutral pace, or situ- situation neutral plays, situations. Um, and... Hertz was accounting, obviously, for a lot of rushing attempts, like 13-plus rushing attempts per game. So you kind of expect the Eagles might throw the ball a little bit more here, but they're playing the Jets. It's a game that they should control. This run-the-ball approach has been highly favorable to them. So Gardner Minshew threw 25 passes, but threw about 240 passing yards. It would have been just as easy for him to have 240 passing yards and no touchdowns and disappoint everybody who played him. So the risks were there. What I really liked about the way that you could build around this game, though, take this example, right? Devontae Smith plus Gardner Minshew plus Elijah Moore. Well, put those three guys together and they cost about 15K. Same thing with Miles Sanders instead of Elijah Moore. Put them all together and they cost about 15K. So you're not dedicating that much salary to the risk and the upside is still there. So compared to a more expensive stack, or compared to hunting for value in terms of one-offs, right? Like maybe you go, uh, I guess Stafford plus Cup wouldn't even work. That's more expensive than than this entire stack. But like Brady plus Godwin, and then you take a really cheap guy to kind of fill this out. Well, you're taking on more risk on this cheap guy. Or if you're spending 23K on your stack, you're taking on more risk. If it fails, it's, it's knocking out a larger chunk of your salary. And so I liked the fact that you could get this Eagle stack and it was still cheap. And I feel like walking through these thoughts is probably thoughts that a lot of you were walking through as well, which helps to kind of see, okay, here's some different ways we can look through a situation like that. And here's some different ways that we can assess things where I was really proud of the steps that I took was I, I basically had Carr and uh, Derek Carr and Deshaun Jackson on my main roster and Gardner Minshew plus Devonte Smith cost about the same. And the reason I couldn't pull the trigger on Gardner Minshew plus Devontae Smith was because I felt that in terms of what would hit most often and what would give me a greater edge, Carr plus Deshaun Jackson was actually better. Actually, let me spend a moment on that. So why Carr plus Deshaun Jackson? Hilo talked about Deshaun Jackson several times last week. I mentioned Deshaun Jackson a few times. We all liked Derek Carr. It was was obvious why that could have succeeded. It didn't succeed in the small sample size of one week. But what I really liked about Carr plus Deshaun Jackson was this. Again, we always want to look a layer deeper. We always want to look at what production from a pairing can mean. Okay, so Henry Ruggs played seven games this season. Deshaun Jackson played one game heading into this last week where he'd had an actual snap load, where he played 40-plus snaps. In those eight games, Carr, plus that downfield pass catcher, combined for 40 to 50 points three times in eight games. Now, again, their combined salary was 10K, 10.2K. So they needed about 40 points to hit that 4X. In fact, I think it was 42 to 52 points they had scored in three of eight games. Now that's good, right? We're looking, any, anytime a player or a pairing can go for 4X more than once every four times, that's beneficial to us because that's beating the way that DraftKings typically prices these guys. But what I really liked about it, going a layer deeper, was that Each time that Carr plus his downfield pass catcher had hit, Hunter Renfro had disappointed like 10 points or fewer in all three of those games. And Darren Waller or Waller slash Moreau had disappointed 10 points or fewer, 12 points or fewer in all of those games. So we have a popular player in Renfro, a popular player in Moreau, and I am betting on a scenario in which not only would I get the points from Deshaun Jackson plus Derek Carr, but if I'm getting those points, I am actively hurting the Renfro and Waller, or sorry, the Renfro and Moreau rosters, because more than likely this is where the production's coming instead of Here, where everybody else is. So, I was having a hard time getting off of that pairing just because not only was it a sharp pairing, but it also had really nice leverage that was going to go overlooked. Deshaun Jackson was like three or 4% owned. People just weren't on him. And then everybody was on these other two pass catchers from the Raiders. But I also felt like Minshew was a better point per dollar play than Derek Carr. And so, for a while, one of the reasons I couldn't pull the trigger on that build was because I still felt like Carr plus Deshaun Jackson was a better play than Minshew plus Devontae Smith. Now, this is where A, I made a really sharp move, and B, things started to break down. So the I'll go to the B first. I kept messing around with Minshew plus Devontae Smith, and you'll notice I haven't mentioned Goddard yet. And that was because I had it so stuck in my mind that it was Gronk or Kittle at tight end. Now, neither of those were bad plays. Obviously, Gronk scored two touchdowns. He put up over 20 points. Kittle put up, I think it was 38 points, had a monster game. Uh, but, and, and, and Goddard had six targets, again, or five targets. It could just as easily have been a disappointing outing from Goddard. But I should have made that leap. It's like the example I used from last year when Mixon scored 45 points and was totally unowned and he hadn't been on my radar. I'm fine missing out on the player, but I want them to have been on my radar and I want to know why I didn't play them as opposed to just overlooking them. So that was that was the mistake that I made here. Where I was proud of the move that I made was I realized Minshew didn't need to be stacked with one of his pass catchers minshu naked was a perfectly fine way to go because minshu cost 4k so if i was saying well minshu is a is as good of a play as car and minshu on the bad end you know he's not gonna throw many touchdowns he gets 13 14 points on the good end he can go for 22 to 25 points at only 4k well i can do minshu and no Devonte smith Minshew naked and then go to different pass catchers in this range because Minshew having a 20 point game doesn't mean that any of his, like all the time we see quarterbacks put up 20 points and none of their pass catchers are worth rostering. Minshew was so cheap, whereas Devontae Smith was a little bit overpriced for his range of outcomes. In fact, I don't think that Devontae Smith has hit 4X, a 6.1K salary yet this season. So Minshew naked. And I got to that point. Late Saturday night. And this is where things kind of fell apart in terms of my final roster. Was late Saturday night, I was feeling like I just don't have it yet. And I thought, you know what? I need to put a bookmark in this and finish things on Sunday morning. But that's always a little bit uncomfortable to do because you're in a time crunch on Sunday morning. So if you can avoid it, it's nice to have your roster set before you go to bed Saturday night, especially if you live on the West Coast and uh, you know games kick off early. So I had this thought, well, I should wait until tomorrow morning to wrap this. I just don't, I don't have my final answer yet. And then I decided to force it and come up with my final roster. And then I sent out the Sunday morning email and I, and I broke down Gardner Minshew and the reasons why he made a lot of sense. And I and I laid out kind of the slim risks about the rushing, but also look, this is a great play. And and I said, I'm not playing Minshew myself, but he's on my second favorite roster. I've built. I sent out the email, and then I was like, Man, I feel like there's a way to build this Minshew roster that's a little bit better. And kind of went back to the drawing board again and built a Minshew roster plus Sony Michelle plus Antonio Gibson, plus James Conner, plus Brandon Ayuk, plus Deontay Johnson, plus Cooper Cup, plus Rob Gronkowski, plus the Dolphins defense. And I really liked Deontay. And and every roster I built, I wasn't able to get up to him. Uh, I was going to have Cup no matter what. I was going to have Gibson and Carr no matter what. And I'd kind of gone through this whole process that allowed me to say, look, I don't need Devontae Smith and I can still feel comfortable playing Gardner Minshew. This allows me to get down to Sony Michelle, which frees up the salary for me to get up basically from Deshaun Jackson up to Deontay Johnson, which is a clear and obvious win. And I kind of sat there for over 10 minutes trying to decide if I was going to play this roster instead of the one that I had already locked in place and basically decided, well, I don't want to make a last minute switch. Now, what's interesting is the night before, I had already said I shouldn't make a decision yet. I'm not ready yet, I'm not at the point yet where I can lock in this roster. I should wait until tomorrow morning to make my final decision. But instead, I kind of forced a final decision. And then because I had made a final decision, I wasn't able to pull the trigger on this better roster that I built. What's interesting, tying this back into what we were saying at the top, is if we were able to look at that roster objectively before games kicked off and kind of step back, move to Sunday night and are thinking and say, what's a better build, a build that has car Basically, a bill that has—if we say that Jamal Williams and Sony Michelle are kind of a wash—and if we play at the slate hundred times, you really don't know which guy is going to outscore the other. Obviously, Sony Michelle is going to have a smaller pass game role, but a greater chance of a multi-touchdown game, greater chance of hundred yards on the ground. Jamal Williams, we expected, was going to have a much greater pass game role. Expected him to have six, seven, eight, nine targets that didn't materialize. But if we call that a wash, well, what's a better roster? Minshew and Deontay Johnson. Or Carr and Deshaun Jackson? Well, if we've already said that Carr and Minshew are kind of a wash with one another, obviously you want the roster to get you up to Deontay Johnson. I wasn't able to pull the trigger on that roster. That roster would have finished eighth place in the game changer, and instead I finished out of the money in the game changer. But it was kind of an interesting weekend. It's a weekend that we run into probably two, three times in the start of the season where the weekend really is about being better than the field at putting together the rosters, based on who the sharp plays are from that slate. Not not the chalk that has just formed because chalk always forms, but lots of truly underpriced plays at lower variance positions, quarterback and running back, which allowed us to then say, okay, who are the highest certainty pass catchers at tight end, at wide receiver, so that we can say, look, there's always going to be variance at wide receiver. But if we can get up to Deontay Johnson, if we can get up to Cooper Cup, if we can get up to Gronk and Kittle, we have a lot less variance that we have to embrace at wide receiver. And we're able to do that by betting on the higher certainty plays at running back and quarterback that are just fundamentally underpriced. So we have a few of those early in the season each year when pricing is still shaking out. And then once or twice per year, deeper into the season, we end up with a random weekend like that, where that's the approach to take is basically outbuilding the field. And if you're building 20 rosters, if you're building 30 rosters, you could justify just mixing and matching all the top plays in a lot of different ways. So it was interesting for me the way that the week as a whole came together, where I was making notes early in the week, basically saying, look, if you can fast forward into the future and look back from that angle, things typically look obvious, In retrospect, and I kind of ended up in this time crunch where, well, well, then it ended up being a week where it was about building around who the better plays are and doing it better than the competition. And then basically kind of got to this point where I wasn't able to fast forward, wasn't able to uh, fast forward to the future and look back the way that I needed to and make this uh, correct decision. So that was my week. And I think a really interesting week to talk through, because again, it's almost like if you're a, if you're a hitter in baseball, you can't just know how to hit a fastball. You're going to face sliders, you're going to face curveballs, you're going to face knuckleballs, you're going to face changeups and you have to know how to hit all of those. And so this was a really fun week in terms of breaking it down after the fact because these weeks show up from time to time. And what's important is for us to be able to identify like, look, this is a, a pitch we don't see as often, so to speak, but we have to be able to identify it when it comes. We have to know what type of week it is and we have to be able to build accordingly. So I'm hopeful that some of you basically took this last week and said, look, all this stuff that we've talked about, about being different. Well, this is not the week to try to be super different from the field. This is the week to kind of focus on what the field is focused on, let other people outsmart themselves and build this week better than the field is building this week. Now on a separate note, In fact, a very separate note. There's one other roster that I want to break down from this last weekend, and it's Osimo's roster from the Game Changer. So I talk all the time about how valuable it is to study rosters from other DFS players, particularly DFS players who you know have had a high level of success, and particularly those players' high dollar single entry rosters because these guys are as good at being profitable over time in this space as they are in the large field play. So I was flipping through rosters in the game changer and everything was pretty much the same. There were some cousins rosters and some car rosters and some Heineke rosters and some Stafford rosters and some Brady rosters and 20% of the field had Minshew rosters There was a lot of Antonio Gibson, and James Conner, and Miles Sanders, and Sonny Michelle, and Jonathan Taylor, and a lot of the same wide receivers. and and Foster Moreau was 50% owned, and then obviously a lot of the same defenses as well. Dolphins' defense was the highest owned defense, and as we talk about as you get into single entry play, and especially higher dollar single entry play, people go closer and closer to those safe, comfortable plays that everybody else is on. So when I was flipping through rosters in the game changer and just seeing what different people had done and seeing if there was anything that stood out to me, this awesome roster stood out like a shining, flashing red beacon. At quarterback was Tua Tagovailoa. And at wide receiver was Jalen Waddell and Devontae Parker. Now, Devontae Parker, a quick note on him. uh, He was about 20% owned this last weekend. I started eyeing him on Saturday night. And then basically, and I thought he was super sneaky and it was like, oh, well, this guy's got a, you know, he's seven to nine targets every week. He's only 3,900 and people won't be on him because nobody's ever on Devontae Parker. Finally looked at ownership projections. He was predicted at about 20% owned, and it was like, okay, well now he's not the guy who I want to play. But uh, Tua plus Waddle plus Parker is very different from playing Parker solo, right? Like Parker at 3,900 in a vacuum, great play. Parker- at 3,900, high variance player at a high variance position at 20% ownership becomes less great of a play. But when you tie him in with Waddle and Tua, and now you're actually building a story around this game, it becomes very interesting. What's also interesting is, you know, as you get into these single field tournaments, that the Dolphins defense, which is the most obvious defense, is going to be even higher owned here than it's going to be in other contests so if the Dolphins defense is higher owned I have you know messing around with rosters on Saturday I built some Devontae Parker plus Dolphins defense rosters and had to sit there for like five or ten minutes and, and kind of work through the scenarios for this game and say okay what's the scenario where the Dolphins defense puts up 15 to 18 points and Devontae Parker is putting up 20 points even 15 points and it's kind of harder to come up with that scenario and you had to really think through like okay does this make sense and so Osimo basically played off of that fully by saying if everyone's on the Dolphins defense and this is kind of their starting point in their thinking then nobody is thinking about the Dolphins passing attack as a whole as a complete unit if everybody is on these obvious running backs nobody's on Saquon Barkley 6,300, price right in the same range as Antonio Gibson, as James Conner, as Eli Mitchell. People are not on Saquon Barkley. I think he was like 4 or 5% on something like that in this same game against this Dolphins passing attack. So again, kind of tells this same story. So what Osimo did as his foundation on this roster was Tua plus Waddle plus Parker plus Saquon Barkley as we often talk about you really only need one or two places where you're pulling a totally different lever than everybody else and if you build a roster like this where you know everybody's on the dolphins defense and you know that nobody is on this dolphins passing attack and you're filling up four roster spots with this game stack that nobody's on you don't have to think about strategy from that point forward so the rest of this roster miles sanders alexander madison Chris Godwin, George Kittle. Now, George Kittle was lower owned, but obviously a sharp play and a guy that we talked about a lot last week. And so you basically take Miles Sanders, one of the most popular running backs, Alexander Madison, one of the most popular running backs, Chris Godwin, one of the most popular wide receivers, George Kittle, one of the sharpest tight end plays, uh, wrapped up this roster with the Bears defense, which um, that was an interesting play. Uh, Bears defense ended up scoring zero points. Obviously, the way you're thinking through that is the uh, weather in this game and, And then obviously nobody is on the Bears defense. So you get this one other leverage, this one other lever that you're pulling that nobody else is pulling and give you something very different from the field. And what's interesting about this roster is it ended up finishing in the money. It was so different from what anybody else was doing. And it was really the only roster I came across in the game changer that was just so different from what everybody else was doing. So as we talk about The way to build around a slate like this last week, especially for people like us, is to say, look, there's a lot of things that are predictable in this week 13 slate. And so we are going to try to build better than the field around this predictability. But what if you're somebody like Osimo, who plays all the sports and plays 150 max in all the sports, and most of what you're doing is based on math and strategy? Well, you're saying, look, everybody else is going to be predicting what's going to happen. I am not going to predict what's going to happen. Instead, I am just going to do math and strategy. In other words, nobody is on this game in this way. And so if I'm in a tournament field with, 250 rosters or 300 rosters. And there's only, I think there was one other roster that used Tua. And so you're one of only two rosters building around this game. Well, now you're in a position where you need a lot more to fall apart in what the field is betting on. And again, if you're kind of a math and strategy person, you might not even have a full scope of just how much certainty there was on this last week. So for me on a week like this last week, that wouldn't be the approach that I would take. And for a lot of you, that probably wouldn't ever be the approach that you would take on a week like this last week. And I don't think that that's incorrect either. I don't think that it's wrong to identify a week as a high certainty week with a lot of underpriced plays and to kind of build around that. But it's very interesting to note that Osmo, who obviously is one of the most profitable DFS players, in his single entry, this was the way that he approached this last week. Now, again, keep in mind, This is somebody who isn't trying to get by on his NFL knowledge. This is somebody who is succeeding based on math and strategy, but recognize how far the other way he swung on this last week without being afraid to be wrong, without being afraid to miss out on all these popular plays, but instead just saying, look, if if everything falls, look, it would take so much falling apart on a week like this last week in order for this super low-owned and kind of low probability stack to end up being the most profitable way to play but if you're the only roster in a field of 250 or 300 rosters that's built this way well you're the only roster competing for first place if things break that way you need things to break that way once every 200 weeks once every 150 weeks and it's massively profitable over time because you're the only roster out of 250 rosters that are building this way so that that was very interesting and stood out to me quite a bit this last week that Osimo who's obviously a player that I respect quite a bit and is super sharp in the math and strategy side of things that that was the way that he built around this slate and and, you know there's a lot of times where I've seen this um, where people are like I think Osimo knows people on the teams and gets information beforehand about how different players are going to be used because how else could he have ended up on this player that nobody else is on? That's how he ends up on these players that nobody else is on is by saying, look, if everybody is overrating their certainty, even on a week where there's just a ton of certainty, I'm going to know that I will lose money on a slate like this probably 99 times out of 100. But on the weeks when things come together just right, I'm going to blow past everybody and make all the money. And so I think that's instructive and important to keep in mind is that even on slates like that, as long as you're going all in, as long as you're diving in with both feet, then you can say, look, I'm going to avoid what everybody else is is on. I'm not fading things, but I'm just going to build around a different game, and I'm going to build in a different way and say that everybody else is overrating their certainty, even on a week where there's that much certainty. And you can make that case and say, this is plus EV over time. You're going to lose a lot more often, but when you win, you're going to have a clear shot at a first-place finish because it would would mean everything else is falling apart, and what you're putting together is... uh, is basically the way that things are shaking out on that particular week. So that was the week 13 slate, an extremely interesting slate in terms of what it offered and what it offered us for, again, using that example of of being a batter facing different types of pitches. The types of pitches that we faced this last week were so different from what we've seen in, in other late Season weeks this year, that it's great to be able to break that down and to kind of ingest all of that so that the next time one of these weeks comes around, we can say, okay, we can throw some of the other stuff that we're typically doing out of the window because this is a different type of week. We're going to try to outbuild the field. And if we're not going to try to outbuild the field, we're going to go all the way. We're going to say, now, uh, last thing I want to highlight on this awesome build is we've got. Pretty high probability guys at running back, right? Miles Sanders and Alexander Madison outside of Saquon, who's part of the game stack. Again, we've got Godwin, we've got Kittle. You're just doing this one stack that's different from what everybody else is doing. And as we talk about all the time, pass catchers are the highest variance spot on the slate. So if everybody else is building around these pass catchers, you can say, look, I'll build around these other pass catchers. As we talked about with the Minshew plus Miles Sanders plus Devontae Smith stack, or Minshew plus Elijah Moore plus Devontae Smith stack, it's cheap enough that the risk is low enough. Tua plus Waddle plus Parker was cheap enough that that can be a spot that bombs. And as long as Miles Sanders, Alexander Madison, Chris Godwin, and George Kittle still hit, you still end up with a profitable roster. Now, that was the reason why Osmo's roster was profitable, not because of the super contrarian stack. It was because he ended up hitting on Godwin and Kittle. But You take that super contrarian stack, and if it ends up hitting, you're way ahead of everybody else. And because you invested less salary in it, if you miss, which this stack did miss, it's not killing you the way that this high-priced stack missing would end up killing your roster. So a lot of things to keep in mind on this. And actually, I think I'll say it like this. I think this week's segment is pretty dense in terms of... There's a lot of layers to what we're covering here that are going to be important to keep in mind, not just the next time a slate like this rolls around, but just generally speaking for DFS in general. So uh, in that regard, I would encourage you guys to kind of bookmark this session and listen to it again in the off season, or even listen to it again later this week. Um, It's short enough that you could listen to it twice this week and, and kind of ingest a lot of this or make some notes or whatever you want to do, because there are big edges when unique slates come up. And if we're able to take advantage of those unique slates better than the field is able to take advantage of them, that obviously helps us a ton over time. With that, that's what I have to cover this week. We don't have any questions that have come in. So if anyone does want to hop up on stage here in our our small classroom tonight, go ahead and raise your hand. And if not, then uh, make sure that you are dropping any questions that you have. Kind of like how I said that I was tracking these notes for this week's session throughout last week. Uh, Go ahead and if you have questions throughout the week, I encourage you to drop them into the, uh, the JM Tuesday, 7 PM channel, because basically what we've been doing is this session where this, this section where I'm kind of talking through things is typically about 40 to 50 minutes. Sometimes it's gone an hour, but then we've been early in the season we were dedicating another 30 minutes to questions. And so with the questions drying up, we're, you know, kind of hitting 45 to 50 minutes, which is plenty of time to cover what we need to cover. But it's a lot of fun to get to some of these questions because it'll allows us to explore different things in depth and from different angles that we might not be covering otherwise. So again, as you come up with questions throughout the week, whether they're slate specific, you know, where we can kind of talk through the strategy of certain things in retrospect or just general DFS questions, uh, drop them in that JM Tuesday, 7 p.m. Eastern, and I will be able to answer those in the pre-recorded inner circles that we will be doing the rest of the season. With that, thanks as always for hanging out. Always a pleasure, always a treat. Uh, I will see you guys on the site throughout the week. I will see you in your inbox with a special email on Thursday that's going out to inner circle members. uh, And I will see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend.